There were once three accountants who were traveling to a conference by train with three other friends who were engineers. The accountants bought three tickets, but the engineers only bought one. How are three people going to travel on only one ticket, the accountants asked. Watch and you'll see, said the engineers. They all boarded the train, the accountants took their seats, but three engineers, those three engineers, they crammed into a restroom and closed the door behind them. The train departed the station, and soon the conductor came through the car asking for tickets. He knocked on the restroom door and said, ticket please. The door opened just a crack, and a single arm emerged with a ticket in hand. The conductor took it and moved on. The accountants were impressed and all agreed, this is a rather clever idea. So after the conference, they decided to copy what the engineers did on the way home. They buy just one ticket for the three of them, but they are astonished when they see that the engineers buy no ticket at all. How are you going to travel without any ticket? The accountants ask. Watch and you'll see said the engineers. Maybe you can see where this is going. When they board the train, the accountants all cram into the restroom like they saw their, account, their engineer friends do with their ticket, and the three engineers do the same thing in a nearby restroom. After the train departed the station, one of the engineers left the restroom, walked over to the restroom where the accountants were hiding, knocked on the door and said, ticket please. It's kind of a funny story, funny joke, but it is also kind of disturbing because those engineers took advantage of those poor accountants. And please, if you're an engineer or an accountant, I'm not trying to stereotype you today. It's just a joke I found online that fit with the sermon today. All right, I know accountants are very smart people. They're not, they wouldn't be that gullible. But isn't it kind of a disturbing story? They took advantage of those poor accountants. They also cheated the transportation system out of the money that it was owed for those, for those rides. The engineers were clever, but I would not commend them for what they did. They were dishonest, selfish. That's kind of the feeling I get when I read the parable that we are studying today. If you got your Bible in whatever format, you have it in before you, open to Luke chapter 16. We'll also have the scriptures, I believe, on the screen for you to follow. Luke chapter 16, starting in verse 1. It's the parable of the shrewd manager, or unjust steward, as it is often referred to. Jesus told his disciples there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him and asked him, what is this I hear about, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I am not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that uh, when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each of the master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe the master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450. 
Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees, who loved money, heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. Do you get kind of a disturbing feeling when you read that parable? Amen. Well, yeah, maybe it makes sense to you. I'm still a little puzzled as to what exactly I'm supposed to take away from this story. The manager embezzles money from the owner, and then when he gets found out, he makes a clever plan to secure his future by cheating the master some more, and the master commends him, and Jesus tells his disciples, this is how you're supposed to be like. You're supposed to follow this example. This makes no sense to me. And I'll be honest with you, family, even though I am preaching on this text today, I have preached on it before. I studied it even extra this week. I tried to even find some new insight on this. I am still very puzzled, troubled, and intrigued by what exactly we are supposed to do with this story. I don't claim to have the answer for how it is we are to understand it and apply it. If you go to the commentaries to try to find some direction, some direction, you come across several different interpretations, most of which revolve around how we should handle our money, which kind of makes sense. There's a lot of that in, in the context later on that Jesus talks about. Uh, one popular interpretation is that the manager is shrewd in how he secures his future. So Jesus commends his crafty, forward-looking use of resources. He's like street smart, and so maybe we're supposed to kind of be like that with our own resources. That's often an application you see. But that does not sit very well with me because the manager was kind of acting like those engineers in our opening illustration. He was clever, he was shrewd, but it was at the expense of the master, of somebody else, taking advantage of others for his own benefit. It's bad enough that he had already embezzled money from the master, now he is making it so the owner will lose even more profits by giving these huge discounts so that he will have his future secured. This is what I'm supposed to apply to my life? I find that hard to believe. Another interpretation you find is the manager may have been dishonest earlier, but in reducing the bills, he is simply and graciously cutting out some of his own hefty commission in hope of goodwill later. Have you heard that one before? Maybe you've, you've understood it that way. And, and that one sits a little bit better with me. Oh, the, the manager kind of has this change of heart maybe, and he's cutting out the commission that maybe is 
owed to him. But the only problem with this is that if you do like some digging on the cultural setting, it, it's really hard to think that he has had a change of heart at all. This guy is an estate manager. He collected for the master what was owed to him from the renters. And this type of job in that day and age was often paid by commission. But it was usually a fixed amount on top of what was owed the master. And it was often given under the table or off the books, kind of like what the tax collectors used to do when they would collect taxes for the Romans. They would collect some extra off the books. If you notice, the steward asked the debtors, what is it you owe the master? In other words, what's the official amount that needs to be recorded in the ledger? Therefore, most likely, he is not sacrificing any of the commission he would have, been got, he would have gotten. He is sacrificing the profits of the master to make himself look good. In addition, it is pretty unrealistic to think that the amount that he discounted would equal his usual commission. 500 gallons or, or 450 gallons of oil, whatever it was, and 200 measures of wheat, both of those equal about 500 denarii worth of goods. That's like a year and a half of earnings for an average worker. There's no way his commission was that big. There is no charity here. There is no giving up any, anything here. There's no repentance here. In fact, Jesus even refers to him as what? Uh, a person of the world, right? Not a son or a person of the light. So I don't think he has had any change of heart. I find it hard to believe that Jesus wants me to somehow emulate his kind of sacrificial uh, way of going about and doing this because he's not sacrificing anything of his own. So what is this parable trying to teach us? Again, I don't claim to have the exact answer, but I want to just suggest three options. There could be more, but I just want to suggest three options of what Jesus could try to be teach us, teach us from this parable. Option number one, it could be that Jesus is trying to get us to understand that we should use our earthly resources earthly resources, especially when we get more than what we need in order to bless others and build meaningful relationships with them. Jesus does, after all, say in verse 9, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. And I guess this steward, even though he is dishonest and a cheater, he did, in a way, give a blessing to those debtors, a huge blessing. One of my favorite authors puts it this way as she comments on this story. I think she says it well. She says, the Lord has endowed Christians with capabilities and power and influence. He has entrusted them with money that they may be co-workers with him in the great redemption. All his gifts are to be used in blessing humanity, in relieving the suffering and the needy. We are to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked, to care for the widow and the fatherless, to minister to the distressed and the downtrodden. God never meant that the widespread misery in the world should exist. He never meant that one man should have an abundance of the luxuries of life while the children of others should cry for bread. The means over and above the actual necessities of life are entrusted to man to do good, to bless humanity. Maybe that's what Jesus is trying to teach us here in this story. 
And a second option. A second option could be that Jesus is trying to teach a lesson to the Pharisees to expose how they've abused their religious power, how they've used the goodness of God for their own advantage and benefit. Maybe that could mean that Jesus is even being a little sarcastic here, maybe ironic here as he says, the steward is commended for being shrewd, for using the goodness of the master for his own benefit. Could be. Verses 13 through 15 seem to suggest that maybe that would be a good line of thinking, what Jesus is trying to get at here. Another quote from that same chapter in Christ Objects Lessons, Ellen White also comments on this option. She says the Pharisees had, Pharisees had tried to bring Christ to, into, disrepute, into disrepute by accusing him of mingling with publicans and sinners. Remember, they did that back in the beginning of chapter 15. The scene now to have taken place among the publicans, he holds up before the Pharisees both as representing their course of action and as showing the only way in which they can redeem their errors. To the unfaithful steward, his Lord's goods had been entrusted for benevolent purposes, but he had used them for himself. So with Israel, God had chosen the seed of Abraham With a high arm, he had delivered them from bondage in Egypt. He had made them the depositaries of sacred truth for the blessing of the world. He had entrusted to them the living oracles that they might communicate the light to others, but his stewards had used these gifts to enrich and exalt themselves. The Pharisees, filled with self-importance, self-righteousness, were misapplying the goods lent them by God to use for his glory. So maybe Jesus is trying to teach us a lesson to check our self-importance, our self-righteousness, our selfishness, to reflect on if we are serving the master for his benefit or for ours. Kind of like what Pastor Mark touched on last week. What's our motive for serving? But I think there's also a third option. In fact, it's the option I am most confident in, and that is that this parable is meant to teach us yet again of the extravagant mercy and grace of the Master, and that we are to place our hope in nothing else but that. My confidence in this third option comes from the context before the story. We are in Luke chapter 16. Remember the story that comes just before this in Luke chapter 15? We studied it a few weeks ago. The story of the prodigal son or the two lost sons, or even better, as we learned last time, it should be called the story of the prodigal father because he is so reckless and extravagant in his love and grace for his sons. Many scholars suggest that there should not be a chapter division between 15 and 16, between these two stories. They are meant to complement each other, meant to be understood together. You can see some similarities, can't you, in both stories? They both have this benevolent father, master, who's, who's got a good reputation in, t- in town, They both have these characters who take advantage of that, ask for money uh, um, from the owner, from the estate for their own benefit. Both masters and owners are incredibly gracious in how they respond. I I know the owner fires his manager, which he should do because the master does value justice also, and he knows that he can no longer work in this role. 
But according to the laws of the day, the steward would have been expected to pay all back what he had stolen, what he had embezzled from the owner. And if he was not able to do that, the master had the right to sell him and his family into slavery in order to make up for the loss. At the very least, the steward would have expected that the owner would have sent him to prison for such a crime. But the master does none of these things. He doesn't even scold him. And then when he goes off and he gives these big discounts, which eat into his profits even more, he commends him for doing that. You know, when the steward had lost his job, much like the younger son, he had hit rock bottom, like the younger son did when he was at the pig farm. This, this steward has no job. He has no hope of a future job because of how his employment ended. What is his options? What are his options next? What is the one thing he can do to fix it? The only thing he can do is put his trust back in the mercy of his master. After just experiencing it, he, he just leaves, uh, he, he just has to leave his job. He doesn't have all those other uh, things um, happen to him. He decides to double down on that grace, goes all in on the mercy of his master and chooses to give those massive discounts. I have to think that this is the shrewdness that is commended here in the story. The late great British Bible scholar T.W. Manson described the commendation of the steward like this. He says, I think I have the quote for you on the screen. There is all the difference in the world between I applaud the dishonest steward because he acted cleverly and I applaud the clever steward because he acted dishonestly. Jesus is not applauding dishonesty. He is applauding a dishonest manager for being clever enough to put all his trust in the grace of the master. It could be that the master will throw him in jail or sell him into slavery when the ledger comes back and it's missing that 1,000 denarii worth of income. But the steward is banking on the fact that the owner will once again be gracious. A dishonest steward was clever enough to realize that he had no other option but the grace of the master. Are we that clever? Are the sons and daughters of light, us who are part of the body of Christ, are we clever enough to realize the extravagant mercy of our master and to put our total trust in his grace? It can be so tempting to want to slip into that legalistic mindset, the one that says, I have to perform better. I have to work harder to secure my future. It can be so easy to doubt that his grace is extravagant enough for the extravagant mistakes I've made. It can be so tempting to think that because of what we've accomplished for the Lord, the time we've spent serving him, we are entitled to something more. But we are called to be more clever than that. I was not very clever in preparing for my very first class at seminary at Andrews University. It was a distance learning class. Uh, make a long story short, we were uh, in between places to live. I was living with Beamy's parents 
in Maryland while she was still finishing up her contract for her job in California. And I started classes, and if any of you have ever taken those intensive courses, you know where they cram a whole semester into like a week or two, it's really tough, and, and I had, that was my very first class, but that usually means that you do a lot of work before you get there or after you, take your, you go there for the, for the lectures. Well, this teacher wanted us to do a lot of work before class, and this, one of the assignments, one of the main assignments that was going to have a very big impact on our grade was to read this pretty good-sized book and to do a report on it, and we had to hand it in first thing Monday morning for the class. Now, this book, I love when teachers do this, had been out of print for quite a while. And so it was really hard to come by. I would search online. I wasn't, you know, close to, um, to where the school was. I couldn't find it anywhere in, in the, the GC resources over there uh, by, uh, in Beltsville, Maryland. And online, I found it a few places, but it was like going for $90 or $100. I was not going to spend $90 or $100 on some book I probably would never read again. So my plan was, I'm going to go a little early on Sunday. And remember, it's Maryland to uh, Berrien Springs, Michigan. It's about 11 or 12-hour drive. So I was going to wake up like at 1 in the morning, drive there, go straight to the library, read this book as fast as I could, write my report, and have it printed out and ready to turn in Monday morning. Very clever plan, I know, but I just wasn't going to pay that 100 bucks for the book. So of course, Sunday morning came, I slept through my alarm, I woke up like at 6 a.m. or 6.30, something like that. In a frenzy, I pack everything in the car and I head out, and I make it there in probably about 10 hours, go straight to the library, it's like 3.30 or 4 in the afternoon, and I get this book and I am skimming it as fast as I can. By the time it's about, oh, 9 p.m. or so, I start on my paper. <laughs> I can't remember how long it was supposed to be, five or seven pages, something like that. And this teacher was kind of old school. We could not electronically turn in anything. It had to be printed out, hard copy, handed in, right when class started at 8 p.m., or at 8 a.m. He made that clear. Uh, so the library was going to close at 11 p.m. I had two hours to write this paper and print it out. Well, at 10.58, I wrote my concluding sentence. I put my flash drive into my laptop to save it, and as I'm doing that, the lights in the library go out. I frantically run to the front desk and say, hey, I still got two minutes. I need to print out my paper. Sorry, library is closed. No, it's not. I got two minutes. Please, you don't understand. If I don't have this paper printed out by tomorrow at 8 a.m. for class, then I'm going to have my grade really badly impacted. I have to print this off. And you know what that guy said to me? Well, you should have started sooner. <laughs> and he was not wrong. But it's not what I needed to hear at that time. I kept trying to, to plead with him. He says, I've already shut down all the printers. I do that five minutes before closing. It'll take forever to, to boost, boot, boot them back up. And we'll, it'll already be past 11 by then. I'm sorry, I can't help you. The library's not going to be open before my class tomorrow. I, have, I know nobody there. It's my first time on the campus. My only hope is if this guy working across the desk would give me some grace. I was frustrated at him. I was frustrated at myself. I was feeling defeated. All that time wasted. I was regretting my procrastination. And in that moment, I hear this loud, resonant, but kind voice come from behind me that said, 
my friend, I am mercy and I can help you. I am not making this up. <laughs> that is what I heard in that moment. I turned around and it's you know, dark there in the entryway of the library there at Andrews and here's this tall man standing right by the door who I think was about ready to leave but he heard me arguing with the guy at the desk and felt sorry for me. Standing there, he had this big smile on his face. I, I'm sorry, what did you say? I am mercy and I can help you. His first name is Mercy. <laughs> he was also a student there in the seminary. It was his last class that he was taking and he was also cramming in the library for the class the next day. And so Mercy invited me and when Mercy invites you, you go, you follow. <laughs> so I went out the door, I got in Mercy's car, we drove to Mercy's apartment his kids were sleeping in the one bedroom. His wife was still awake. She greeted me. She's just as kind and gracious as her husband. Offered me something to eat and drink after we spent some time together. He walked me into his room. Obviously, he didn't know he was going to have company that night, but it's their bedroom, which was also their home office. Fired up his computer and printer and said, here, my friend, print out your paper. If it wasn't for mercy, literally, I would have been lost. If it wasn't for the mercy and grace of the Master, we would be lost. We would have no hope. Family, if I could leave you with an appeal today, I know there's many important things we could maybe apply from this, from this story, but I think I could boil down the appeal in just two words. Be clever. Be clever. And what I mean by that is, is be wise enough to see the extravagant grace of our God. Meditate on it. Study it. Study its depths. Just when you think you have learned how gracious God is, he surprises you again. Like with this story. We, we, you're just reading the prodigal son. Wow, God, you are so loving, so gracious. And then we get to the next chapter, and you're like, I, I didn't think you could be even more gracious. This isn't even a son, a family member. This is just some manager. And look at the grace you give him. Be wise enough to see the extravagant grace of the master. And then be shrewd enough to put all your trust in and base every action of your life on that grace. Oh, how you love us, Lord. We are sinking in the ocean of your grace. Thank you for that. May we not try to put our trust in anything else but that and live our life flowing from your grace. In Jesus' name.